I'm going to talk about what I take to be the short form, if you like, of Annie Alba's work, those small samples that I'm, I'm sure you've seen. And of course, you know, I'm going to try and talk about the short form, if you like, of her work in a short form talk, like 15 minute uh, talk. And of course, in order to do that, I've had to, to cut. Um, and of course, in order to do that, I've had to cut and cut um, something larger uh, down to size and, and cut away to try to get rid of the surplus and arrange all this very disorderly stuff that I, I have in my head um, and that's kept changing over the course of this exhibition. Um, and of course, you know, even as I'm telling you this, even as, as I'm uh, thinking this thought, I, I, I'm wasting time, I kept feeling as I was thinking about this. You know, I've already wasted 15 seconds. So, you know, cutting always ends up adding. Um, or at least it, there's something about the short form and the long form that's always a matter of, of time in some way. Um, and the short form is actually quite hard to distinguish from the long form. Um, and the long form, I mean not the, the long novel, I mean the vast numbers of uh, samples that exist. So here we have you know, the short and the long of it, if you forgive me, in this table, on this table, um, a long table at the end of the exhibition containing Annie Alba's samples. And they're laid out, if you like, as if it were a, uh, a retrospective in miniature. Um, and what we hoped was that you, you know, the viewer, would recognise or glimpse a recognition of a, a pattern or a weave, a texture that you've already seen. And actually, you probably have seen um, in the course of viewing the exhibition. Um, so there's this aspect in a retrospective that I think is important to inject of kind of retrospection. It's much more intimate, much more personal. It can go with, flow with, or cut against the grain of these much larger, overarching narratives. So on this table, there's an array of Annie Alba's samples, an array, say, of possibles, um, an array of these small pieces that were made either for experiment or as prototypes for production. Um, the samples give us a version of the work that could be put in a few it could be contained in a few boxes, a suitcase perhaps. Um, it cuts across the entirety of her weaving career, although for sure um, there are fewer examples in the show of the Bauhaus years. And also, of course, they kind of slant the version of the work in the direction of her design work rather than the larger-scaled woven wall hangings or the one-off pictorial <laughs> weavings. 
Um, all the samples, though, I'm going to be talking about are, of course, hand-woven. So rather than take us all, taking us away from thinking about process, on the contrary, I think the samples force us to think rather differently between the handmade and the machine-made, the hand and machine production, you know, this kind of antagonistic uh, relationship that's troubled modernists so much and so troubled the, the modern project. A textile sample is a small part of a whole that has yet to be produced, a part of something that doesn't necessarily uh, yet exist, a small quantity of fabric made either, as I've said, as an experiment, in Annie Elba's case, or as a possible yard fabric for manufacture. So I'm talking about trial pieces, only some of which are made up in larger quantities. Now in German, the word for sample is muster, and is the same word for pattern. And that's not so different, of course, in English when we um, talk about sample books or pattern books. And the German term comes from mostra or monstrari, the Latin to show, whilst in English the word sample derives from the Latin example. So a small quantity from which a general quality can be inferred, like a specimen. And both those, show, those senses of um, showing and exemplifying or providing a, a model might be helpful, but so are samples as parts of a whole, samples as substitutes, but also perhaps samples represent amounts of time, um, a measure of how long it takes to make one, in a sense, shorter or longer. Textile sample or pattern books have a long history, of course, from the 18th century in the mechanisation of textile production. and Merchants would use such books to show their clients different colourways, prints, weaves. Major museums have literally hundreds, like the V&A or the Metropolitan, literally hundreds of these sample books. And they represent a, a really global trade. Um, this is actually an early 20th century sample book showing how these small swatches served as selling or marketing tools, showing the array of samples on offer. The great German writer W.G. Sebold illustrated um, in Rings of Saturn um, an 18th century pattern book, characteristically poorly, you know, a grainy black and white image, um, noting their truly fabulous variety. And he wrote about the marvellous strips of colour in pattern books, in edges, the edges and gaps filled with figures and symbols, pure books, more compelling than the normal sort we look or read we look at or read, books that moved through the world, he says, 
the property of the importers that traded in textiles, moving them through Europe, through the trade fairs of Copenhagen, Leipzig, and Zurich. Looking at the pages, he goes on, and he illustrates this. They might have been, he says, produced by nature itself, like the plumage of birds. I'm reminded of Caroline's woodpecker, which kept kind of coming back to me when I was thinking about this. Um, and maybe we could see Annie Alba's myriad small samples as equally marvellous. At least I want to try to recover something of the strangeness of them. Um, something of the strangeness of the modernist sample rather than take it for granted or assume its efficiency or its function or whatever. Even though Annie Albers, of course, didn't keep her samples in old books, um, the repositories she would later prefer were a little bit more mundane. Here she is with a ring binder that doesn't seem to have the same kind of charms, okay, as Sable's 18th century pages. Here the samples are in clear plastic folders ha housing these hand-woven samples. But maybe the, you know, if you like, the phantasmagoria of modernity can be seen to it exert its own seductions. Um, and the seductions of a peculiarly modern kind. Um, here she is, rather older, with her folder of her samples that's also, of course, a sort of archive. And in the modern context, the sample is just as much a token of the circulation and distribution of her work. Um, a record of its life in the world of commodities and exchange, as well as a record of the constant experimentation that drove her work from the outset. The exploration of structure opposed, as opposed to form through material and texture as a means to participate and transform life. That is weaving as a means to our articulate something about what it is to participate in life. Um, and it's the process um, that interests me, from the most experimental exercise to prototype to product, and not simply as the story of those end products, um, but the process, the backstream, if you like, um, in its own right, how there's this constant, constant drive to experiment with woven structures um, that links to so many other aspects of certainly Bauhaus teaching and pedagogy, even through to Annie Alba's own uh, student exercises that she developed when she got to uh, Black Mountain College in the early 30s, where she ran the weaving workshop, encouraging students to make these tactile experiments with everyday and found materials. Now, although these might seem the opposite end of the spectrum from the fabric samples that she will later mark with her own label, Annie Alba's Fabric, I think we can see them as part of the same textile logic of process, where then, rather than a reductive, the fundamental logic of the grid gives onto 
endless permutation and variation of a material and tactile kind, particularly. So the samples, as I said, offer us a, a way of cutting across the work. At once, you know, she's working for a store on Madison Avenue, part of spectacular culture. At the same time, she's making these highly experimental um, samples insisting always on this relationship to the handmade, to a slow process, to the handwoven sample, as she insisted, a kind of laboratory for machine production. But not only are the samples made by hand on a small loom, but I, I think they have a relationship to other handmade things, not least the collection of... Um, textile fragments, pre-Columbian textile fragments that she herself amassed, as if her own samples almost kind of double this collection of small textile fragments. These hundreds of small scraps of antique and not-so-antique textiles that she collected during their travels. And this photograph brings together... Um, one of those pre-Columbian sculptures from the Alba's collection, a structural constellation by Joseph, and there she is, Annie, with her ring binder full of samples. And I think there's a proximity with these fragments of textiles, the pre-Columbian, the Mexican, the Peruvian textiles, which, of course, is to do with the modern as well as the antique, and maybe helps us to say something about the nature of ge geometric patterning, uh, fraught as that might be. As we've heard, you know, Joseph Albers would claim the ancient art of Mexico is the first abstract art. And no, no doubt there's a certain kind of universalising um, in that claim. But another, another way of looking at that is surely to say that Annie Albers herself must have understood that ancient textiles had been able to articulate complex beliefs about the world through abstract patterns, complex belief systems, and of course so do modern textiles. And by symbol system in this context, I don't mean a certain shape that's symbolic of something in particular, but that they articulate ideas abstractly through materials, through structure, through process, using unconventional modern materials often, like cellophane, together with raw natural materials, where the loom as an apparatus predetermines the modernist grid. Um, so although weaving might be an ancient craft, it has this natural affinity with the grid that makes it almost an ideal modern medium. So all these samples tell stories about the history of making, of collecting, of manufacture, of working to commission, of not getting the commission, about materials, about techniques. And I want to say something briefly about the way the room dividers from the late 40s, in some respects could be seen to follow the logic of the sample. In some ways, they are samples. Um, 
you know, this whole idea of partition material, as she named a number of the samples attached to those room dividers that you've seen in the exhibition, I hope. And this is a, a, a sample from the Cooper Hewitt, a, a material sample from um, about 1949, the same year that she showed them at MoMA. Um, the whole idea of a partition material, as she named many of these samples, is about partly blocking off and partly filtering light, um, about a textile being susceptible but also responsive to an environment, you know, like a body. Um, she made many of them around this time. Um, this is the installation at K20, Maria Mulasharek's installation of the room dividers that we also have in our show. And the materials are obviously hard to see, I know, but, you know, they variously use jute, cotton, horsehair, cellophane, um, sometimes with, you know, intricate um, interweaving of, as I've said, um, synthetic and natural fibres. Um, and here's a detail of one of the room dividers that we have in the exhibition. The samples for these partition materials or um, casement fabrics as well um, can be seen to be part of this dynamic, this experimental dynamic of seeing through open gauze weaves, weaves uh, open gauze weaves that form the, so much of the, the structure of her work in, in the, the late 40s and the 50s. Um, showing that a kind of dynamic, I think, as well, between the one-off works and the samples and the prototypes, you know, working reciprocally in, in both directions, for sure, you know, between the samples, the room dividers, the one-off works, the pictorial weavings, the borders between art and design, process and product, are also now very hard to keep in place, I think, firmly at, at least. And they all share this haptic sense that seeing through always means seeing through texture. Now, I mentioned towards the start of the talk, uh, Sabled. And you might quite reasonably have thought that a little bit far-fetched to bring into a talk on modern textiles those 18th century pattern books. Um, in a way, yes, clearly it is, but Annie Alba's samples, I know, don't actually necessarily look like the plumage of birds, not literally anyway. Um, but on the other hand, they're not not strange and fabulous as an array of a display of difference, the sheer variety of different patterns that it's possible to make on a loom. Um, the most ancient craft, as I've said, yet also the most attuned to the modernist grid. Now, all these samples that I've been showing are generally, I guess, thought of as, as marginal to the main narrative of her work, to the, to the main story. Um, but I want to suggest otherwise that they reveal something or something that's important to me um, about the work 
they are, in a way, the work that went into the work, you know, but they're also its archive. So they're almost like it's unconscious, if I can use that analogy. They're the texture of a commodity culture, not its transparency now, um, but its inner tactile lining. At any rate, they're very hard to keep still. They're very hard to keep in their proper place. Um, very hard to keep in their proper place. So I've tried to suggest that as much as any other kind of form, a grid can be endlessly open and malleable, open to many different versions of itself. A kind of phasmagoria, if you like, both showing and exemplifying an imaginative as much as an economic landscape not just an archive, but a repository of a textile imaginary, you know, of what modernity might feel like. Um, and as small parts of something, they may not yet exist. Um, so samples aren't only archival or retrospective, but, you know, projective, um, they're prospective, not just retrospective, and they prospect, as it were, um, looking like, you know, as if they're experimental tools to look to new possibles. Sampling now, as part of a language of how music is distributed, also has this sense of you know, remixing, reusing, creating the new out of those kinds of um, remixes. These samples, as I said at the beginning, they often end up in boxes. It's where they live, it's where they belong. Lying one on top of uh, the other like substrates or deposits, yet, you know, laid out, they also open onto endless variation within a, a species type. You know, flipping between the as it had been and the yet to come. Thank you.